Well, uh, again, it's good to be with you all this, this morning, and uh, I, um, I'm pretty tired today uh, because I saw a movie last night with the college students, and the time changed. Uh, but I want to ask you, how are you sleeping lately? Uh, you know, have you had any interesting dreams? Maybe you're like my wife, and you fall asleep like that. Anybody, your head hits the pillow, and you're just out. Yeah? Good for you. Maybe you're like me and, well, actually, sometimes when we're praying, Caroline will fall asleep while I am praying. That's how fast she goes to sleep. I'm the guy, though, who, you know, I'm tossing, I'm turning, I might get my phone out, which I know doesn't help, but there's a lot going on in my mind, and it's hard to turn it off. Uh, You know, I don't know how quick you fall asleep. Maybe you've got things in your mind and your heart uh, that keep you up at night. There was a rom-com that came out uh, in the 80s called Sleepless in Seattle. I actually haven't seen it, but love Tom Hanks, love Meg Ryan. Uh, Well, this story in in Daniel chapter 2 is nothing like that. Uh, But I stole the title, Sleepless in Babylon, from that movie, because there is some sleeplessness going on in Babylon, and a whole lot of people's days are about to be ruined uh, because Nebuchadnezzar is not, not doing well. Bad dream leads to sleeplessness. And I am personally really glad that I was not around that day because I would not want to be uh, in his path. Uh, But we're going to see that Daniel, uh, this prophet that we're studying right now in this series, he responds in faith uh, to this sleep-deprived king. Uh, So I'll pray for us again, and we'll read uh, the first big chunk of Daniel chapter 2 together, and then we'll work through the text. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we can be here this morning. I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for the prophet Daniel, who, man, he really challenges me. Uh, What a a faithful dude. Uh, But I pray more than seeing anything good in Daniel this morning, that we would see your faithfulness, that your great faithfulness would be highlighted. uh, As uh, Daniel, just like like all of us, needed your spirit uh, to be at work in him. Uh, needed your kindness, your grace, your mercy uh, to be shown to him. And Lord, I pray that the same would be true uh, for us today. And um, I pray that we would see Jesus in this text. Uh, so we lift up all these prayers to you in his name now. Amen. So Daniel chapter 2, and we'll read the first 23 verses together. Let's, let's read. It says this, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king, Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered, And said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. And we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint, to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Y'all, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is a pretty crazy story, right? Welcome to the book of Daniel. If you haven't been here in the past, I mean, it's just crazy after crazy, right? Welcome to the crazy mind and and heart of Nebuchadnezzar. But y'all, God remains sovereign in the midst of the king's chaos. And he's not just gracious to Daniel and his friends, but he's also merciful to spare the lives of so many others, right? Who Nebuchadnezzar is about to kill. God's hand is all over this chapter, but before we get there, we're going to see some impossible expectations, from Nebuchadnezzar, followed by some extreme reactions by him and the Babylonians. And then we're going to see those reactions juxtaposed uh, with faithful response. That's the outline. One, impossible expectations. Two, uh, extreme reactions. Three, faithful response by, by both Daniel and God, that last one. And we'll ultimately see that Daniel's God is sovereignly reigning high above all the other characters and chaos in this story. So I hope that you and I might believe the same about our story as a result. But let's start with these, these impossible expectations down in Babylon. We're in the, it's the middle of the night. We're in the bedroom of the king. We hear snores maybe, but then they stop abruptly. Maybe we hear a scream. Ah! Nebuchadnezzar has just had a terrible nightmare. How bad of a dream did he just have? Well, verse 1 tells us it was bad enough for his spirit to be troubled. 
Have you ever woken up from a dream and it was so real that you've got to stop and almost ask yourself, did that actually just happen? I hope not. Maybe you get up and you go, you, you go look in on your kids or, or someone else in your family that you love. Maybe you, you check your phone or you, you check something in your reality to, to help remind you it was just a dream. Thank goodness. But the horror of what you dreamt makes you feel real emotion, right? And oftentimes, you can't go back to sleep after that. It's three, there's no way I'm going back to sleep after that. No use in trying. And so this likely leads to a difficult day ahead because now you've had a terrible dream that sticks with you and you're just unsettled and now you've got the fatigue that comes with sleeplessness. I mean, it's never fun being on the giving or receiving end when someone has had a bad night's sleep and they're out for blood. Maybe it was this morning. I'm sorry if it was for you. This sermon's for you too. But you're just looking to pick a fight. You're just like, someone engaged me right now. Someone set me off, right? I think from verse one alone, we can assume this chapter is not gonna go well. I mean, just read that one verse. He had dreams, his spirit was troubled, his sleep left him. You know, I just wanna be like public service announcement. Everyone should take their vacation now and run. Leave Babylon. No one's safe. But wait, Nebuchadnezzar's got a whole team of people, we'll call the dream department, who are here to help him deal with this problem right? Oh man, they're going to fix this. Look at verse two. Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans. I mean, all four of these groups of people make up the dream department. And all of these people, this huge team, Nebuchadnezzar has gathered together to help him interpret his dreams. They're going to fix it. Great. Maybe this crisis is going to be averted after all. So the king summons them all, tells them in verse three, I had a dream. My spirit's troubled to know the dream. They respond, oh king, live forever. We're glad to help. Just tell us what you dreamt and we'll get our guys on it right away. The king says, no, no, no. You tell me the dream and the interpretation. And if you don't, I'll tear you apart limb from limb. Destroy your homes too. But if you tell me the dream, I'll give you gifts, honor. It'll be great. Verse seven, they come back a second time. If you can just help us out and tell us the dream, That'll make this go way easier. Like, trust us, this is how it works. We're the experts. But now they've set him off. He accuses them of trying to buy more time, of speaking lies and corrupt words, and he gives them one final chance. Y'all tell me the dream or else. And they're like, what you're asking is impossible. You know that no other king asks his dream department to do this, right? I mean, the mind of a man is something only the gods know. And they don't live down here with us in the flesh, sir. One commentator writes this, the Babylonian wise men were horrified at the unreasonable demand. They could not meet it for they were diviners and not prophets. That is, they sought to discern patterns in events and dreams that foreshadowed the future, but they claimed no direct access to the mind of God's. Y'all, impossible expectations have been revealed. This is ridiculous. The time bomb is ticking and everyone is literally fearing for their lives. And there's about to be a whole lot of death in Babylon. Well, I have a confession to make. I said, uh, I went to a movie last night with the college, I went with the college students. We had a good time. I'm a busy guy. 
I write sermons every week for RUF, and uh, this week, uh, because I was writing for Ruth that we're studying in large group, uh, and now Daniel, because I'm fitting into y'all series, I actually asked my daughter Annalise to write this sermon. She's two, by the way. Uh, that would be ridiculous, right? I mean, she doesn't even know. She's still learning how to say words. Well, how about this? How about, maybe you'll believe this. How about my daughter, Nora, who's five, she actually drove me here this morning. No, that's not true either. How about me walking in the door and expecting my wife, Caroline, to be able to know I've had a really hard day and be extra nice and extra sensitive to me without me ever telling her anything. You believe that one? You should, because I do it more often than I want to admit. What I'm trying to do, you know, I don't have expectations of Annalise writing this sermon. I don't have expectations of, of Nora driving me here, but man, do I have expectations of them in other ways? Do I have expectations of Caroline? Oh yeah, a whole lot of that woman over there. What I'm trying to do is is move closer and closer to your and my actual realities because you and I both have unrealistic expectations of all, all kinds of people, all kinds of things of God. We are oftentimes expecting things from people that we can't even guarantee them from ourselves. That's you and me. We want them to read our minds, right? But we need to hear from the sleep department Only God can do that, right? And we make others and even God in our image or whatever image we want them to exist, and we're mad when they don't play their role correctly. This is not how it's supposed to go in the way that I'm writing it for you and it's all in my head. Come on, spouse. Come on, friend. Come on, God. That's not the line you're supposed to deliver here. Haven't you read the script that's in my mind that I haven't told you about? That's not the action that you were supposed to take. Let me correct you. Let me yell at you. Let me shame you. Let me run from you. Aren't we all just like Nebuchadnezzar? Haven't we all been you know, on, on the giving and the receiving end of unrealistic expectations and felt maybe on the receiving end the, the burden and, and we've just crumbled or, or we fought back because there's just no way I can measure up to that. Y'all, unrealistic expectations flow out of restless hearts. And that is exactly what we see in this passage. The king is not resting in God. And just like him, you and I, we have a restlessness that flows out of our lack of rest in him. And we have unrealistic expectations of God, ourselves, and others when we fail to rest in him. Augustine said, we are restless until we find our rest in him. And man, that'll preach. What kind, let me just ask you, what kind of unrealistic expectations do you have of others in your life? And how might it be wreaking havoc on your life and theirs? I wish I couldn't, couldn't identify with Nebuchadnezzar uh, as much as I can, but sadly I can and I think you can too. Well, let's roll into our second point and see the snowball going down the mountain in the form of extreme reactions. The dream department, they are, are, are trying to reason with the king and explain that they aren't claiming to be dream guessers. They're trained in interpreting what their clients tell them they dreamed. 
By the way, some commentators think this is really interesting, think that Nebuchadnezzar may have a fuzzy memory. I mean, think about your dreams. You wake up and you, it's so real, and then 30 minutes later, you're like, what now, what was it? What were the gaps? What were the holes? And so it's very likely Nebuchadnezzar may have gaps in the dream. And so he's like, no, you tell me the dream because he's terrified. And he's thinking, if we miss any of this, y'all aren't going to be able to interpret it for me. And y'all, this, this might have national significance because we might be attacked. This dream given to me, the king, might be for this whole nation. And if we forget something, it could be crucial information. But when these men can't give him what, what, what he needs, he is literally about to kill everyone in the department, including those still in training, like Daniel and his friends. Not only does he have impossible expectations of everyone around him, he is literally planning to destroy them when they don't measure up. He is consumed with anger at their incompetence. And it's overkill, isn't it? He says, I'll tear you limb from limb. I'll destroy your homes. I'm sure their families aren't safe either. And he goes off when they ask for more time, suspicious that they've been speaking lies and corrupt words. This, this reminds me of Hitler, honestly, who was just suspicious of everyone. You make one wrong move, you say one wrong thing, and it's like, you're on the other team, aren't you? I mean, I, I think I've heard stories of him like taking out high officials because he's just like thinking everyone's turning on him. I'm sure many of the world's leaders from history are driven by a desire for power and, and, and a deep-seated anger that leaves them never satisfied. And so they never stop, and they leave a wake of bodies, literally or figuratively, in their wake. But we all get angry sometimes. We're mad at the world for letting us down. What do you do with your anger? Do you blow up? Do you say things to hurt others because your anger is out of control? Kids who disobey. Friends who cancel plans. I can't believe this. Do they not know that I have a busy schedule? Bosses or other leaders who aren't leading perfectly, if you would just measure up. We murder them in our hearts and in our conversations as long as they're not within earshot. Maybe in small ways like avoiding or ignoring them. Or maybe in large ways, by cutting them out of our lives somehow. Because I'm angry and I'm just over here doing my emotions instead of figuring out healthy ways to work through conflict and my sin that I'm bringing to the table in healthy and productive ways using biblical things like conflict resolution, confession, forgiveness. I don't care about that stuff. I'm taking you out. But oftentimes connected to our anger is fear. And behind, I think behind Nebuchadnezzar's anger is fear that his kingdom will fail. The nightmare has him terrified and he's frantically trying to figure it out. I mean, we also know there's fear in the hearts of his court as they obediently, the, the, I just love the line, oh king, live forever. I wonder who even means that when they say it. They're supposed to say it. They're like, you're the man, we bow in submission but it just almost makes me laugh. Like, do they actually believe that? They're telling him what they think he wants to hear. They're desperately trying to satisfy his request. And as they eventually hear, they're all about to be executed. You better believe they're terrified. But how much of our lives, how much of your life and mine is motivated by fear? Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of being found out. 
Fear of being alone, fear of sadness, fear of hopelessness, or just continuing to feel low and empty like I feel right now. Is it really always going to be this way? I am so terrified of that. The list goes on and on. And y'all, if we're honest, our fear is one of the most powerful motivators that we have. But it oftentimes pushes us into and reinforces unhealthy coping mechanisms that just become normal lifestyle choices. We are a mess, y'all. Are we, let me ask you some questions. Are we sharing our fears with people in healthy ways? Do we actually trust anyone? Do we actually trust God to care for us, to bring healing or hope to our lives? Y'all, fear can cripple you in the middle of the night when you're trying to fall asleep, but also in the middle of the day when you're surrounded by friends and family and coworkers. It can ruin relationships and keep us from trusting the most trustworthy person because I'm projecting past hurt And I am assuming you're going to hurt me too. You're going to leave me too. You're going to wrong me too. I thought of Simon and Garfunkel's song. They say, I have no need for friendship. Friendship causes pain. I am a rock. I am an island. I'm not doing that. One of my favorite bands growing up, Nickel Creek, they sing in this song, Jealous of the Moon. I hate to see a friend of mine laughing out loud when she's crying inside. But you've got your pride. The chorus says, you're staring down the stars and you're jealous of the moon. You wish you could fly, but you're staying where you are and there's nothing you can do because you're too scared to try. Or take the story from Genesis 11 when a group of people build a tower called the Tower of Babel because they're proud and they are afraid. They think they can build this tower up, you know, so that God will see it up to him, to his level, They don't want to be conquered. What do they say in in, uh, Genesis 11, chapter 4? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you hear the pride? Do you hear the fear? And y'all, we do the very same thing with our lives. Protect, defend, promote self put down others, judge, push them away when we hurt, or pull them closer to control them, to manipulate them, to make them hurt like I do. The real nightmare for you and me, if we're really honest, is the life we construct for ourselves. I'm over here and I'm not okay with the fact that I identify most strongly with Nebuchadnezzar and all the dream department. I don't, like, I don't like how this passage is going. These people whose lives are so broken. But y'all, God shows up in Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, to foil the plans of those people trying to build uh, this cute little Jenga tower of self. And he shows up in Daniel 2 in a beautiful way. So let's juxtapose the extreme reactions of these people with faithful response. What do we see? Well, right off the bat, we see juxtaposition as Daniel shows wisdom and faith in action. He hears the ridiculous news uh, that the king's about to destroy everybody. And verse 14 tells us that with prudence and discretion, thoughtfully, wisely, he speaks to Arioch, the king's captain, and, and he asks, why is this decree so urgent? What's, what's going on? 
Whatever he says to Arioch leads to further explanation from Arioch. And I think about it. He doesn't get arrested. He doesn't you know, get prosecuted in some other form. Upon further explanation, Arioch's talking it out. Daniel boldly requests an appointment with the king himself so that he, Daniel, might show the interpretation to the king. And somehow, the Nebuchadnezzar time bomb doesn't go off. I mean, think about it. When the other people ask for time, he's like, you know, I could see him flipping at a table. I know what you're doing. I know exactly what you're doing. Well, Daniel reasons with Arioch, and then he says, let's set an appointment, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the bomb doesn't go off. Y'all, Daniel's actions here remind me of a young David who would become King David eventually. But in 1 Samuel 17, David boldly faces Goliath when everyone else around is just crouching in fear, including the king, King Saul. Everyone else is listening to this giant who is probably day after day coming up and just yelling, screaming, defying God, defying Israel. They're hiding anywhere and everywhere. They're paralyzed. But David, who has just been sent to like check on his brothers and take them some food, and he's like, you hear this guy? Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is spitting in the face of God? And he steps up and he declares to Goliath, the battle belongs to the Lord, bro. You're going down. Right here, right now. Let me ask all of us, how often are you and I reminding ourselves the day is the Lord's, the battle is the Lord's? How often are we reminding ourselves when Jesus says, I will be with you to the end, behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. That applies to me here, now. Or that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Or that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are we preaching this to ourselves? Or are we just in fear? Somebody's going to take me out. I can't move. I can't do anything. How often are we thoughtfully, prayerfully going about our day, looking to follow God into the battles, a.k.a. your meetings, your decisions, your conversations, your relationships, arming ourselves with the sword of the Spirit and the rest of the armor of God. Is God not able to help you and me in every instance of our lives? Why are we settling for less, y'all? He tells us to pray about everything and to make our requests known to him. Are we doing it? Are we, are we missing out? Let's see if Daniel remembers that verse. Daniel is walking by faith. He is talking by faith. And then in verse 17, he is just continuing to seek new mercies and new wisdom and new strength as he shares this situation with his friends. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, he asks them to pray right along with him. Like the clock of the king, the time bomb is is ticking. It's still ticking. And Daniel sets down his stopwatch because he knows it's only by God's grace, by God's hand, that help will come. No use in watching that thing. And so they pray, and y'all, when God answers the prayer, when he receives this vision of the night, the mystery is revealed, does Daniel run like Charlie Bucket? I've got the golden ticket. Here, don't kill us. 
Did, did I make it in time? No. What does he do? He blesses God and prays yet again. Walk with me through verses 20 to 23. He blesses God's name. He acknowledges that God is the rightful owner of wisdom and might. That God is Lord over time and season. That he is king of kings, including little old Nebuchadnezzar. Again, that he is the source of wisdom. Repetition there. He's the one who gives wisdom. That he indeed is the one who reveals hidden things like this dream. That he can see in the dark like nobody else can, and that light actually dwells within him. And I love in in verse 23, he transitions from the third person to the second person, talking to God, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. God, I asked you for wisdom and might. You're the source of wisdom and might. You have given me wisdom and might. Thank you for giving me these things. Thank you for answering me. Thank you for providing for me. Daniel might as well be singing, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God, you are the source. You are the faithful one. Y'all, Daniel is just really functioning as a signpost, right? As a window through which the reader actually sees the faithfulness of God. I mean, yes, God uses Daniel. We can commend Daniel for his faith, but God is really the true faithful one, isn't he? My question to all of us is this, how are we preaching the faithfulness of God to ourselves and each other? How are we tracing the rainbow through the rain and feeling the promise is not vain? How are we really listening to each other, lifting each other up, seeking God's mercy together? How are we bowing the knee to God's kingdom, even as we wake up each day in the kingdoms of this world? Y'all, God's sovereign hand is at work every single day. And we've got to be reminded of his faithfulness. We've got to sing of his faithfulness. We've got to live in light of his faithfulness. His grace doesn't run out, but our attention span does, and our memory does. It's one of the reasons we've got to keep coming back to church. Because as, as, as Martin Luther said to one of his congregants, you know, she's like, why do you keep preaching the gospel week after week? He says, because week after week you forget it. I know I do. And I'm grateful for the means of grace that I get to enjoy week after week with my brothers and sisters in Christ as we all remind each other of his faithfulness, as we study stories like this one and sing songs like we've sung today. I'm grateful to be with y'all. But we've got to wrap up and we're going to go back to the beginning of the passage to do it. If you really think about it, Daniel in a way proves the words that the sleep department said to be true, mostly. Remember back in verse 10 when they said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. And then they say that the thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And here's Daniel saying, yep, no one in the flesh can do it, but my God can. And then it's his faithful God's provision that saves the lives of all these men. So Daniel's faithful response to God, not extreme reaction, remember, leads to God's faithful and merciful deliverance of all these lives. Does this sound familiar? 
I love that the sleep department says, the God's dwelling is not with flesh. Because without meaning to, they're tossing up the alley-oop for Jesus to just slam down, right? That's a basketball reference, if you didn't get that. Because Jesus comes on the scene precisely to bring the wisdom of God in the flesh. Precisely to bring ultimate deliverance. Precisely to demonstrate the sovereign hand of God and reveal the gentle and lowly heart of God to fearful, angry, proud people like these people, like these people. Do you see God revealing Jesus to us right here in Daniel chapter 2? He's doing it. It's a shadow, but it's clear as day. Jesus is the ultimate proof, proof of the faithfulness of God. And he prays, I mean, we see it in his word, he prays for us, those far off. That's you and me. And he's praying with and for us right now to know these new mercies, this new hope, this new joy. Jesus blesses the name of his father every single day and he invites you and me to know his father as our father. And in him is more wisdom than Daniel ever received, including this chapter right here. And he offers wisdom and love and hope and joy as he offers himself to you and to me. It's an invitation to all of us this morning. Let's pray together.